Good morning or good afternoon or good evening or whenever you're listening to this podcast. Today we're going to be talking about one of the hottest takes in America right now, and that hottest take is the Black Lives Matter movement. Now some will argue that it has been a great movement in terms of calling out the fallacies within black communities, and others can criticize it and say, oh well, I agree with the cause, but the execution of the movement has been, you know, it could be a little bit better. And I'm here to tell you that I think it's all wrong, and I'm going to debunk it right now. Alright, so as I was saying, I'm going to be debunking the Black Lives Matter movement today, and I'm going to be doing so through a website by parents.com titled Six Reasons All Lives Matter in Terms Simple Enough for a Child. But before we even get to that, I'd just like to apologize for taking so long to upload this podcast. I've been busy and I've come across some extreme technical difficulties. And I hope that through this experience, I become a professional for you guys and, and promote better content. Also, if you're going outside, please be safe and wear a mask, protect yourself, and protect others. All my research into this podcast will be linked through our various social media accounts and possibly the description, so you can check any of the links you want, and if you want to debate me, DM me on Instagram, and maybe we can have a live debate here. Anyway, scrolling down to the first thing, the summary of the website says, As the world stands up and speaks out for social justice, more parents are having conversations among themselves and with their children about the past, present, and where we go from here. The language matters just as much as learning. For example, given various U.S. systems and institutions act as though black lives are dispensable, it is imperative to say black lives matter as opposed to all lives matter. The reason black lives matter went from a hashtag to a movement illustrates exactly why saying it out loud was necessary in the first place. Notes Gina Green, a political strategist, a writer, and mom of four from Stanford, Connecticut. Anti-black racism is hardwired into America's DNA and it touches black lives every single day from cop killings to predatory lending to poorly funded schools. To say BLM acknowledges that in many ways we never did. Not to suggest that anyone else matters any less. Explanations of the statement and importance of not saying ALM have been popping up all over social media. Here are six examples that nail it. Okay, scrolling down further on the website. Their first example is titled, We Never Said Only Black Lives Matter. There's a picture of this girl with a poster that says, We said Black Lives Matter. We never said only Black Lives Matter. We know all lives matter. We just need your help with the hashtag Black Lives Matter for Black Lives Are in Danger. So in this picture, there there's a six-year-old girl named Armani, and she's from Tennessee. Apparently, her mom, Shalindria Quinnies, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm butchering that, by the way, uh, came across this quote on Facebook that she put on the poster. Uh, not necessarily knowing the origins, but explaining the post to Armani she convinced her to be the mascot of that quote. Quinice believes that it's important for children to be involved in current events. According to the website, she said, They are the future. 20 years from now, Armani will be a woman, and I pray to God she doesn't have to do what we are doing right now. So there are a couple things I find wrong with this. Um, I'm going to take out certain segments of the first reasoning. So where the post says, We never said only Black Lives Matter. If you just look at the BLM logo in comparison to other major movements, an example LGBT, it appears that there isn't an inclusion of minorities, although that is what they claim to stand for at all times. LGBT in comparison has a rainbow flag, as we all know, that is symbolic of representing every sexuality and sexual orientation. And on the part where it says black lives are in danger, that that's not necessarily true. Um, if, if we look at it statistically, 
We can check through the expanded homicide table 3 from the official FBI website that the total number of white victims is at, is at 3,499 in comparison to total black victims at 2,870. But the race of offenders when talking about black violence, they total at 2,570 African Americans. When we look at the gender of the victims, male victims total up at 4,751. Out of those 4,751, about 2,073 are white males and 2,455 are black males. And um, with the female population, there's a total of 1,913. And out of those, there are 1,117 white females and 696 black females. So what does this mean? Um, in summary, from looking at the data provided, African-American males are the major offenders across all races. When Clonice mentioned that children are the future, this is slightly off topic, but it gave me an analogy about BLM. It reminded me of something called parental alienation syndrome. Um, for those of you who have never heard it, it's basically a situation where when a child's parents get divorced, the parents tend to create biases against each other. Children are easily brainwashed in situations like this. Since they have very malleable brains, they tend to succumb to whatever is being wrongfully taught. Before I get to that, let me drop a bit of background context. More than 90% of people are married at least once before the age of 50, and out of those marriages, 45% of them end in divorce, according to the American Psychological Foundation in 2014. So when a child experiences parental alienation syndrome, they notice the spouses exhibit, exhibit a high degree of anger, hostility, and distrust between each other, and this is defined through the Johnson and Camp Bell case in 1988. Um, parental alienation syndrome actually makes up approximately 15% of all divorces, and it was defined from... The Kelly and Emery case in 2003, Ravit in 2011, and Saini in 2012. So you might be thinking, Chink, <laughs> you're just dropping a bunch of numbers on me without telling me what it is. You're absolutely right. I, <laughs> I should probably explain that also. So PAS is defined as the exclusionary proprietary control of a child's mind from the Kawar and Rivlin case in 2013. Continuing with the definition, it elaborates that PAS is a campaign of denigration and hatred against the target, weak, absurd, or frivolous rationalization for this deprecation and hatred, lack of visual ambivalence about the target, strong assertions that the decision to reject is theirs and theirs alone, and it's the independent thinker phenomenon. And I feel that this can be so strongly related to BLM for a matter of reasons. I immediately think of the independent thinker movement, consider or sorry, thinker phenomenon, considering the allies believe they're independent in their thoughts when in reality it's just a giant hive mind. Sure, you can argue that there are some people who really know what they're talking about, but with the rise of social media and the vulnerability to misinformation, seen time and time again, by the way, with fake news and articles justifying anti-vax and flat earth, etc., it gets harder to believe that there's concrete evidence in gigantic movements. Anyway, on to example two, there's a video called It's This House That's On Fire. Um, this girl named Given Sharp creates this TikTok and uses her own analogy to combat against ALM. The website says, Given Sharp explains in a popular TikTok video that ALM is like saying all houses matter when one in the neighborhood is on fire. On Instagram, she elaborated, The fact is that white lives have always mattered in the eyes of the government and the police force. The same cannot be said for people of color. No one is saying your life doesn't matter. However, until the day comes that black Americans aren't being shot in their homes, in the streets, or in their cars, you cannot tell me that all lives matter in the eyes of our society. All lives won't matter until black lives do. So once again, I'm going to be taking out segments of her sentence. So the part where she says that black Americans are being shot in their homes, in the streets, and in their cars, that's somewhat misconstrued and undermines the true impact of all victims, regardless of race and contact with law enforcement. 
If you check Statista.com, there is a data table titled The Number of People Shot to Death by the Police in the United States from 2017 to 2020 by Race. The table says that there are 457 white people shot in 2017, 399, 2018, 370 in 2019, and 204 in 2020. With black people, it was 223 in 2017, 209 in 2018, 235 in 2019, and 105 in 2020. It's actually a bit ironic considering that the majority of victims are white at 52%. And yes, while it's true that black people are 2.5 times likelier to get shot, they only make up 32% of all victims. In relation to how these cases were settled, uh, 22% of them were mental health related, 18% were suspected suicide by cop incidents where white people were more likely to die in this scenario, 14% involved intimate partner violence, and 6% were unintentional LE deaths. Now when I'm talking about LE, I'm referring to law enforcement or lethal action. People like to, they like to emphasize the relationship between the black community and the task force. But when we look at statistics, LA action accounts for approximately 1% of all violent deaths in the U.S. each year and 4% of all homicides. It's unfortunate, though, as social media has been covering the topic of mental health this month. It's true that 25% to 50% of LA action involves individuals with a mental illness. I won't deny that. But the majority of those people are white and not black. We should not segregate mental illnesses based on race just for the sake of what's been happening in the past few months. We should address that as a community, not necessarily in separation of each other. Moving on, 93.6% of violence was inflicted with firearms. So when given sharp talks about, uh, talks about black people being attacked at home, the chances of being attacked at home are 44.6%. In the public streets or sidewalk, it's at 22.4%. Granted, um, it might be alarming to know that firearms are used quite often in dealing with people, but in 82.6% of all cases, the victim was reportedly armed. So they're not just going to shoot you for just being erased. There's actually an intention behind this. There's actually planning. There, There is a call made to dispatch to deal with these kinds of people. In 87.7% of cases, there was evidence of immediate threat posed by the victim that led the police to shoot them. LA action was precipitated by suspected criminal activity at 80.5%, when responding to a dispatch regarding homicide, assault, or another violent crime. In the data table, which I'll link somewhere by the way, they, they analyzed 143 different cases. Domestic violence was at 11%, brandishing a weapon publicly, 7%, shots fired, 9%, traffic stop, 20%, serving an arrest warrant, 14%, kidnapping, vandalism, or taking people hostage, 14%, encountered during routine patrol, 6%, well-being check, 2%, undercover surveillance, 1%, and unknown reason, 16%. Taking this into consideration, it's, it's evident that black people have an overrepresentation relative to the U.S. population at 32.4%, but the majority of these victims were white. In the case of mental health or substance abuse, these unclassified cases were at 53% were more likely to occur in public than at home from black victims. So when Given Sharp says that black people are being shot in their homes more in comparison to others, it's disproportionate to the fact that it happens just as much to any other race. I agree, though, that it's alarming that such high numbers are being recorded across all races, but rather than seeing this as a racial issue, I consider it more of a community issue. As in, it's an issue that needs to be addressed within the community, within local police officers, until it gradually redefines the police force. And I'm not talking about defunding the police or abolishing them, that's different, but rather just a gradual reform of what's already existent. Anyway, um, back to the statistics, if we look at Table 8 of FBI.gov, it says of incident characteristics, 52.2% were white. Out of them, 85.4% were a threat to law enforcement, and this is proof that this, this isn't racial intent. White people can be just as accused of crimes as black people, 
Personally, I don't think evil discriminates based on anything physical. Speaking of police reform, many departments have also implemented training programs to assist officers in identifying and managing situations involving acute mental health cases using de-escalation and other tactics to reduce the risk of violence. Crisis intervention teams and mobile mental health units have been employed in some jurisdictions to improve police response by involving mental health professionals at the scene. This whole blurb I just bat out, it was a direct quote from someone working within the system on the website. So there obviously is progress being made, but progress and change, as appealing as they sound, take a lot more, that, lot more time than people would usually opt for. Change is more or less the norm now, whether that's positive or negative, and it feeds into this instant gratification that change should be immediate and that suddenly all of life's problems go away. It doesn't. When we break things down into smaller fragments, both political parties are actually getting what they want. They'd only realize it if they spent less time demonizing each other and using that time instead to be appreciative of the small increments. Moving on to example three, it's called a broken bone. So basically, it's like the short comic, I guess. It's supposed to be, you know, lighthearted. Um, there are two gingerbread men, I guess, and one of them has, like, his leg chopped off. Uh, so basically, he's pleading for help, begging for assistance, and the guy next to him is all, well, what about my legs? I... I don't even think I have to explain why why this doesn't work. There are there's just so many loopholes. Um, once again, I'll link the source in the description, social media, whatever. You'll you, you'll be able to see it when I finish this. So moving on to example four, it's called the implicit two. And in this Reddit thread, a user makes an analogy of a family dinner to explain that the word two is implied at the end of the statement, Black Lives Matter. And to respond with All Lives Matter is to dismiss the statement by quote unquote falsely suggesting that it means only Black Lives Matter, when that is obviously not the case. Again, not worth going over, but I'll just add one thing. If it was Black Lives Matter 2, why didn't you just call it that? Then again, I don't think it's really the name people have an issue with, but rather what the movement has done in the past few months following up on issues in the Black community. Focusing on the name is trivial, but I still don't understand why you couldn't have just added 2. Hey guys, Chink here. Apologies for interrupting if you are still listening. Um, and if you are, thank you. Thank you for taking this time to listen to PodChamp. Obviously, this is the first episode of my podcast. And I'm not gonna lie, I'm, I've been super nervous to, to even upload this. Because, I mean, it's not, like, it's not like I can see myself really becoming major with this. I just, I'm just doing this for fun. But if you are listening and you are supporting this, then thank you. Um, I'd just like to plug in the social media outlets really quick as I've been talking about putting up links in the description. So I will put it in my bio here. And I'll also put it, also put my podcast in my Instagram bio. So for those of you interested in looking at political memes and my own political commentaries on different social media platforms, my Instagram is at Chinksplaining. And obviously you have my anchor link here. Uh, hopefully I can get enough listeners and I generate enough quality content to move all of this onto a youtube channel i do have a youtube channel currently but i'm not sure if it would be a good time right now to dive into the political world but you know if you want me to make a youtube channel just dm me you already have my instagram um you already have my podcast you can send a voice message here you can send a dm there anyway thank you guys for listening and continuing on with the show
So, on to example 5. There's a video from Peace House titled All Plates Matter. So, Peace House is an organization dedicated to art and activism that features three friends and food analogy. So obviously I can't play the video or the audio for copyright reasons, but it will be linked, as you just heard. <laughs> so, in summary, at a restaurant, a group of friends show up and order food off of the menu. All the friends are di of different races and are more or less having a good time. The waiter comes back and hands everyone their plate, except, of course, since we're talking about it, the black guy. So while his friends are chowing down on the food they ordered, he keeps asking where his plate is, and his friends are saying their plates matter, to which he says, well, yeah, but you guys already have yours and I don't. And I get it. I get what you're trying to do. I'll admit that it's a good analogy to use a restaurant and the position the guy with no plate was in. Yes, he had no plate, but if we're going to take this a few steps farther, there are probably other people without plates in the restaurant also, hypothetically speaking. In a real-life situation, this has definitely been true, and their legacies and names go unheard of as the media looks for a different turning point. If we're talking about missing plates, we can talk about Daniel Weed and Shaver. He was shot by Officer Philip Brailsford in the hallway of a La Quinta Inn & Suites hotel in Mesa, Arizona on January 18, 2014. He was originally from Gransbury, Texas. We can talk about Dylan Noble, a 19-year-old man who was fatally shot by Fresno Police in June, or even James Matthew Boyd, who was shot by Albuquerque Police Department officers Keith Sandy and Dominique Perez on March 16, 2014 in the foothills of the Sandia Mountains. It's unfortunate that these things happened, but on to example 6, called A Simple Breakdown. So, as I'm scrolling here, a person on Twitter posted a video about why BLM should be opted for instead of ALM. This website quotes that video saying, Black Lives Matter does not mean black people are superior. We're all people, of course, we all matter. But are all races routinely getting killed by the police for no other reason other than the fact they are black? So they argue that the BLM movement does not aim for black superiority. But then why are there so many instances where that is proven otherwise? They say they're for all races. But then how come other races haven't been mentioned? It's all, say their names if they're black. And it's always Black Lives Matter. Until that same black man stands before you in a uniform, either as a police officer or a shop owner. The hypocrisy is quite evident. They criticize ALM for not actually being for all lives, an example of illegal immigrants. First off, all lives do matter, but with illegal immigrants, why create a protection zone for those that bear a terrible reputation among the finest individuals in each race? Black people can be innocent, in fact many are, but why does the movement uplift those that are criminals and turn them into saints or martyrs? Why does the black community stand up for those who try to destroy their name? It's ironic, considering most BLM allies tend to be on the left, which is fine, you know, people are entitled to their own political opinions, but they are also strongly pro-choice. Were the 60% of black babies aborted not black enough to have their lives matter? Now, personally, I will say that I am moderate when it comes to abortion. I see both pros and cons with allowing it into our society, but I think that's for another time. Anyway, back to the topic at hand. Black supremacy, although a lot more irrelevant in the media, exists. It exists just as much as white supremacy has. Black supremacy, according to Wikipedia, is defined as a racial supremacist belief which maintains that black people are superior to people of other races. Black supremacy was advocated by Jamaican preacher Leonard Howell in the 1935 Rastafari movement. Howell's use of black supremacy had both religious and political implications. Politically, as a direct counterpoint to white supremacy and the failure of the white governments to protect white people, he advocated for the destruction of white governments. Yet, people will still claim that the BLM movement hasn't advocated at all for black supremacy. Well, then we can turn our attention then to the statues that have been vandalized and defaced during the protests and riots. There was George Washington, the first president of the United States. So yes, it's true that he had slaves and he inherited them on the, uh, at the age of 11 on the death of his father in 1743. 
but we have to take into consideration that slavery had arrived in 1619 and was brought by British privateers living in Point Comfort, Virginia, which is near Jamestown. Once again, Washington, an 11-year-old boy at the time, had slaves in 1743 and slavery started in 1619. Slavery started 124 years prior to him being born. Not to mention, he was 11. How could the guy have abolished slavery at the age of 11? People are also completely forgetting the part where he actually denounced the immorality of the slave trade publicly in 1774. He also expressed support for the abolition of slavery through a gradual legislative process. In 1775, he allowed Africans, both free or slaves, into the military. He also began dispress, uh, expressing distaste for public venues in 1778. He considered ending slave ownership in the mid-1970s, but because of how America was set up, his economic dependence on them was very tight, and many people at the time hadn't even considered that, you know, slavery was morally wrong. They hadn't considered at all the abolition of it. He was also the first founding father to provide his will for the emancipation of slaves, and of course in 1801, as promised, Martha Washington released his Dover slaves before her death, as he wrote according to his will. And on to Christopher Columbus. It's true that his arrival into the Americas had a lot of catastrophic consequences. On the first day he arrived, he enslaved six people and brought numerous diseases into the world. He was responsible for smallpox, typhus, cholera, scarlet fever, malaria, whooping cough, chickenpox, influenza, and he was also partially responsible for the bubonic plague. And because of him, 90% of local populations were wiped out. However, he also introduced livestock to the New World as a means of trade. He brought horses for transportation. He introduced concepts of modern spirituality, such as Catholicism. He improved food economics across three continents, and he was also affected by a bit of racism himself. He was affected by the Black Legend, but it's not, it's not what you think. Africans did not start the Black Legend. The Black Legend can be described as a theorized historiographical tendency consisting of anti-Spanish and anti-Catholic propaganda. Its roots date back to the 16th century, and it was originally a political and psychological weapon by Northern European rivals in order to demonize the Spanish Empire. It fosters an anti-Hispanic bias among subsequent historians, along with a distorted view of the history of Spain and Latin America. Charles Gibson described it as the accumulated tradition of propaganda and Hispanophobia, according to which the Spanish Empire is regarded as cruel, bigoted, degenerate, exploitative, and self-righteous in excessive reality. And for our last statue that was removed out of historical inaccuracy, Ulysses S. Grant, who was the 18th president of the United States and was also the commanding general of the Union Army, winning the Civil War. Now, I understand why he took down the statue of Robert E. Lee, but Ulysses fought Robert E. Lee for 13 months at the Overland Campaign and at Petersburg. He also created the Department of Justice, prosecuted the Ku Klux Klan, appointed Jewish and African Americans in prominent federal offices as well. I feel that the, the BLM movement is often stepping on its own tail, confusing its principles based on what certain individuals say. Many allies of BLM believe that white people are essentially the root of evil in America, and that minorities cannot be the oppressors. Many people believe that only white people can be racist. That in itself is a racist thought, considering racism is just a discrimination of skin color, and last time I checked, white people were a race. Not to mention, there have been recorded black uh, supremacist groups, such as the Israelite Church of God and Jesus Christ, the Israelite School of Universal Practical Knowledge, the Nation of Yahweh, the United Nawabi, and the Nation of Moors. The BLM movement, they also like to idolize certain people, such as Martin Luther King Jr., to act as the embodiment of peace and the end to all racism. MLK was a great man, no doubt. He did fight for inequality among black people, and he was a true image of anti-racism in our history. But people like to brush over the fact that he himself was opposed to black supremacy. On March 17, 1966, Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech at the Southern, the Southern Methodist University on the dangers of black supremacy. 
He said, and I quote, A doctrine of black supremacy is as dangerous as a doctrine of white supremacy. God is not interested in the freedom of black men or brown men or yeomen. God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race, the creation of a society where every man will respect the dignity and worth of personality. And just as I've been doing this whole time, I'm going to be breaking down another segment. Let's talk about the part in the tweet where it says, We're all people, of course we all matter. We're all racists getting routinely killed by the police for no reason other than the fact they're black. Well, then let's talk about George Floyd then. You know, the one you made a martyr. Are these people really being killed for their race or is there something more? Keep in mind, I am not siding with Derek Chauvin. What he did was wrong, no matter the severity of the crime committed. George Floyd did not deserve to die that way. But I also believe that he shouldn't have been the face of the BLM movement. So, a little background history on Floyd. Um, he grew up in Houston, Texas before dying under the knee of Minneapolis, Minnesota officer Derek Chauvin on May 25th, 2020. But before that, between 1997 and 2005, he was convicted of eight crimes. In 2009, he accepted a plea bargain for a 2007 aggravated robbery, serving four years in prison, and he was paroled in January 2013. As for the, people, as for the other people the movement has stood up for, let's talk about Eric Garner. He was reported to have sold single cigarettes from packs without tax stamps. He was shot on July 17, 2014, while resisting arrest. Michael Brown, who was shot by a Ferguson officer, Darren Wilson, on August 9, 2014. Brown had provoked Wilson by reaching for Wilson's gun and was then shot six times after fleeing from the scene. Tamir Rice, who was reported for carrying a weapon, supposedly fake, but when the police asked him to drop the weapon, he aimed it straight at them and was fatally shot. As unfair as that incident was, there was really no other way he could have dealt with that situation. And finally, Walter Scott, who was pulled over for having a defective light. He ran away from police and was fatally shot. Breaking down the tweet even further, let's address the statement that says, Black lives matter doesn't mean your life isn't important. It means that black lives, which are seen without value within white supremacy, are important to your liberation. Given the disproportionate state impact violence has on black lives, we understand that when black people in this country get free, the benefits will be wide-reaching and transformative for society as a whole. When we are able to end this hypercriminalization and sexualization of black people and end the poverty, control and surveillance of black people, every single person in this world has a better shot in getting and staying free. When black people get free, everybody gets free. First off, I'd just like to say that's quite a hefty list, you know, to narrow down inconveniences in such a short amount of time. Second, there are also a few categories that stand out in this paragraph, and that's poverty, education, and sexualization of black people. If we're going to talk about poverty in regards to bla black people, I guess we should bring up some numbers. So, half of the 4.8 million African Americans who receive Social Security benefits today are retired workers. The other half are disabled workers or the spouses or children of disabled, retired, or deceased workers. 800,000 African American Social Security beneficiaries are children under the age of 18. Almost one in every 19 African American child receives a monthly SS check. And while African Americans equal only 73% of a white person's earnings, they make up 85% of the average benefits the white retirees receive. While, and while only 15% of the child population in the U.S. is African American, they make up 23% of the Social Security survivors' benefits. In regards to education, there are a few instances to point out. When Trump first took office, the Justice Department caused a two-year-old complaint against Harvard University to resurface that alleges the school has quotas on how many Asian Americans it accepts. In October, a federal court heard arguments through the SFFA versus Harvard case on a lawsuit that alleges the same thing. The Trump administration wrote a statement of support for the plaintiffs that says, The record evidence demonstrates that Harvard's race-based admissions process significantly disadvantages Asian American applicants compared to applicants of other racial groups, 
including both white applicants and applicants from other racial minority groups. William Bradford Reynolds, um, he was the former head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, he stated, While university officials are understandably loath to admit that they are discriminating against qualified Asian Americans, rejection of such applicants ironically appears to be driven by the university's affirmative action policies aimed at favoring other preferred racial minorities. Not long after these statements came out, a coalition of more than 60 Asian American groups filed a Justice Department complaint in regards to affirmative action. A federal investigation also unveiled documents that showed admissions officers at Princeton were wrote disparagingly of Asian American applicants, writing them off as standard pre-meds. And in regards to sexualization of black people, there is a study that examines the prevalence of sexualization in TV programs among U.S. Latina and white girls, and through a, it was through a quantitative data analysis of 32 episodes from the 10 most popular TV series on TV. These results indicated that sexualization was present in every coded episode, with at least three instances per episode, and a combined total of 770 instances across all of these. Female characters, um, in this case, they are more commonly portrayed in a sexual manner than were male characters. In fact, they were sexualized in 72% of instances. Characters of color were also generally sexualized at the same rate as white characters. These instances included comments, body exposure, self-sexualizing physical behaviors and activities, as well as these towards others, verbal and physical objectification, as well as body or appearance modification. These findings suggest that this is popular in media regarding Latina and white girls. 59% of these were white and 17% were black. So in total, the findings compared the percentages and it rounded up to whites at 68% with multi-ethnic characters at 32%. Males also face this sexualization as well, uh, making up 20% out of 216 calculated instances. And finally, onto the freedom of black people. We can simply look at the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments that grant them the same rights and equality as white people. Black people were actually able to vote before women were. These amendments to the Constitution extended civil and legal protections to former slaves and prohibited states from disenfranchising, disenfranchising voters on account of quote-unquote race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Congress also passed the Enforcement Act of May 1870 to discourage the KKK to go out and disguise upon the public highways or upon the premises of another with the intention of violating citizens' rights. Anyway, I think this covers all of my thoughts on the topic, and if anyone has any questions, you already know what to do. So if you took the whole time to listen to this, thank you so much, because this honestly took so long to do. Keep in touch for more, and also drop me some more political suggestions. Thanks for listening to PodChamp!